Well, I want to start with a question. It might seem a little jarring, but I'm warning you. What do you think the biggest lie that you listen to is? What's a lie that sticks in your head that you tell yourself or that someone's told to you that you can't shake, that just rattles around, that you try to put aside, but every now and again it just creeps in? What is the lie that you listen to? We're going to be reading from the book of Luke, chapter 4, and then we'll be in the first chunk of the letter to the Galatians, chapter 1. They're both in the New Testament. If you need some help finding them, there's no shame in turning to the person next to you and saying, hey, I don't know where this is. Um, We might even have some Bibles in the back if you're like, I didn't bring one, and I don't want to use my phone because people might judge me. You'll get over it. I got a call from a dear friend early in the week that her husband, also my dear friend, well, as his daughter put it, uh, lost his battle with depression. As she put it, just had to scan the audience for a minute, he took his own life. The day after Easter. And as she shared the not-so-good the bad and the ugly, I had no idea how much pain this man held. I mean, my friend had a lot of good things to live for. Two kids, six grandkids, lots of friends, some appropriate hobbies, and a good job. But shame and lies and fear are dark, powerful forces that can do much, much more than just hold us captive. It can cause us to think life's not worth living. And so this new teaching series called Breaking Free, it just so happens to coincide with this tragic life event for me. But this new teaching series is really for anyone who has felt or still does feel like there's some prison that they live in, something that they're captive to, and something that they need to break free from. And if you have one of those... I encourage you to just hold it in your head for a moment. You don't have to tell anyone. It's not going to be confession time. But hold it in your head and listen to these words from Isaiah that Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry in his home church or his home synagogue as you're imagining that thing. Jesus stood and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives or the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. You know, I've always, always read those as these powerful, heroic verses that Jesus was kind of giving this emancipation proclamation, if you will. And, 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 since, and he embodied those perfectly. And since becoming a pastor, I've often said, well, not only did Jesus embody those verses perfectly, he also calls us to embody those. That if we are people who believe and follow Jesus, then we have the ability And we have the privilege to proclaim good news to the poor, to say freedom for prisoners, to say blind people, you can be set free, you can see, and the oppressed will help you get set free. That's who we are. That's what he calls us to. 
but. But I never, ever listened to them as Jesus' proclamation for me. It was not until I imagined myself sitting in the room with Jesus and thought about those things, those lies, those prisons that I hold myself in that I thought, I need that freedom. I want that freedom. Jesus, you have to set me free. And that's what he invites us to. And I don't know how many people really enjoy saying, I'm poor, I'm prisoner. I'm blind, and I'm oppressed. But that's why we're here. The letter to Galatians, I think, could be titled Breaking Free. Because it's not written to literal prisoners, but it is written to spiritual prisoners. People who first heard of this faith in Jesus as this freedom, this triumphant act of defeating sin and Satan and and death, and that he offers this new life to us, regardless of who you are, where you've come from, your gender, your race, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, that it's all there for the taking. And that is still good news. But they were getting confused on what that great news meant for their everyday life. What does freedom mean in the day-to-day? So in that regard, I don't think the people from Galatia were as different as you and I might think. Paul is this person who starts the letter. It says he's an apostle. An apostle means one who is sent. So let's hear these words from this letter. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by a man, but by Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever." Amen, which is yes. Now I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, good news, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some among you, some people among you, are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one God that other than the one that we preach to you, then let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel, a good news, other than the, what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to still please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Oh God, I pray that you would take this text and you would read us with it. That we wouldn't stand over it, but we would stand under it and listen to what your spirit has to say to us individually and us corporately. Amen. So when we read a letter from the New Testament... 
Sometimes your Bible will even say, like up in the corner, the letter to the Galatians. The letters are a little bit tricky in the sense that they are not stories. They're like one side of a phone conversation. So it's important for us to ask, well, what is the story going on? What might be the other side of the conversation? And, and it's this reality that certain people in every culture, in every continent, in every time period, have proclaimed, this is the best way to live. If you do this, and you think this, and you exercise that way, then you will be successful, happy, and free. I mean, in the 80s, it was the thigh master and the sweat into the oldies, and then the uh, financial success plans of, I can't remember his name. I mean, every person in every time period, there's always been someone that says, this is the way to success. This is the way to freedom. This is the way to happiness. And for the people that were in Galatia, for many of the people that Paul was writing to, what they had heard was, if you follow these rules of a certain religion, be it this time the Jewish religion, then this is the best way to be successful, happy, and free. And the writer says that there are people perverting or twisting good news. Just think about that for a moment. Aren't there always people that are trying to twist the good news? There's always someone who thinks that they can just crank it this way or take it that way, and then it will make sense. Because the reality is our world is messed up. It's broken. And so what we do is we try and say, if Jesus defeated sin and death and the devil, and and our world is so broken, then what the heck? Maybe they don't say it exactly like that, but that's how I say it. And so we can't reconcile that in our own heads, and so we twist it. Sometimes it comes out like this. Um, We should just coexist. We don't have to really acknowledge the other person or agree to disagree. You just live your life. I'll just live my life. We'll just coexist. Or, Or we could tolerate everything. Or... Or the most important thing we can do is to not offend someone. Some people say we can get religion. And some people say just do good things. But that's just some of the ways I think we take this reality that the world is broken and the truth that we claim as people who follow Christ that he did die, that he did rise from the dead, that he is defeating death, that he is defeating sin, that he is defeating Satan. And we take that reality and we say, okay, so how do these kingdoms come together? And we twist the good news. The writer also says that Jesus came to rescue us from this present evil age, the evil world we live in. So what kind of evil is that? Time Magazine published an article in November of last year. What kind of evil world do we live in? I think this kind of evil world is the evil world we live in. The the fact that there are alarmingly high numbers of anxiety, of anxious, depressed, and overwhelmed teenagers. The article starts with this girl named Faith Ann, who is introduced to the reader as someone who is in eighth grade who takes the top of a pen cap and takes the metal edge and slices right below her ribs in this soft tissue at 2 a.m. In her parents' house, 
Because in that moment, she is so overwhelmed with life that this gives her this brief moment of pause. It is some way that she can express the anxiety and the depression and the overwhelmment that she feels. And it would be three years and many, many cuts later that she would actually tell her parents because it was the only coping mechanism that she knew. Now, friends, I mean, I wasn't born that long ago, but what happened? How did we lose all of our coping mechanisms? She said that this helped her escape this anxiety that she was constantly fighting about her grades, about her future, about her relationships, about everything. And most of the days she'd either fall, like get sick at school or throw up at home or cut herself at night. But it was like all of the things that she was being asked to do, it was like being asked to climb Mount Everest in high heels. Isn't that a great example Just wear high heels for a day, guys, and try that, (laughs) let alone climb Mount Everest. And you might be saying that, you know, well, teenagers today, they're just not hardy enough. They just don't have enough thickness. Well, you know, the reality is that self-harm is this phenomenon that goes across every single demographic. It goes to the suburban, it goes to the urban, it goes to the rural, it goes to those that are college-bound, it goes to those that aren't college-bound, and it is one of the most unbelievable expressions of how we deal with anxiety and depression. Unbelievable in the sense that it's just a picture of the fact that we don't know how to deal with this anxiety and depression, this evil world we live in. And 30% of girls, 20% of boys, and 6.3 million teens have some kind of anxiety disorder. And I don't think we can really just blame them because they've grown up in a post-9-11 generation where they've been raised in a time of economic and national insecurity where terrorism and school shootings are the norm of their life. They've watched their parents weather this great recession, and they've grown up in their puberty and adolescence has taken place online where technology, social media have been transforming our society. They can't escape any of the problems that they face. It's like they're in this cauldron of stimulus, one high school counselor said, where they either can't get away from it, they don't want to get away from it, or they don't know how to get away from it. So not only do we pray for our teachers, we realize that there is this evil world we live in. Now, I would love to just say, oh, teenager, your online world is different than your real world. Can't you just see that? But the fact is, they can't. It's been so intertwined that sometimes it's hard to tell. I would love to say, you know, cutting is probably not the best way to deal with your stuff. But here's the thing. This girl knows that. And she knows her parents love her. And she knows she loves her parents. She knows that on paper she has a good life. And that's part of the reason why she does it. That's part of the reason why she hides it is she can't reconcile the fact that she shouldn't feel sad, but she does. Maybe part of the good news is, recon- is just admitting the fact that we have this God who has defeated sin and death and Satan, and yet we live in this world that's broken, and sometimes that is this tension that makes it very hard 
to live in. So what is the lie in your head? There's a little card in your worship folder that's blank. I'm going to ask you, challenge you, invite you to write down a lie that you would like to give up, that you would like to stop believing. And in a few minutes, when we have the offering, you can put it in there. That may seem a little too vulnerable for you, but the scriptures say when we bring something that is of the dark into the light, it loses its power. And trust me, you do not want to live with these lies any longer because they will continue to hold power over you. The first one I believed was the lie of acceptance. I knew my parents loved me, but as a child, I knew that acceptance came from my friends. And so if my friends didn't accept me, then that meant I must not have any value. So I worked desperately hard to fit in. And, and we all know somebody who works desperately hard to fit in, right? Like, it's obscene how awkward it is to watch someone who doesn't fit in desperately try to fit in. That was me. But I had a couple friends who moved away and another one who took the remaining friends from a misunderstanding and that's probably when I started believing this lie of acceptance. So I became whoever was the group of friends that I was around. If I was with my athlete friends, I became that athlete. If I was with my gaming friends, I became the gamer. If I was with musicians, musicians, or the society, honor society overachievers, or the service club geeks, or the super fans of the basketball team. Yep, it didn't matter which one it was. I knew how to do it, and I got actually pretty good at it. But my second lie, that was achievement. It followed closely behind the first one because earning A's in school or medals or letters in sports and achievements was the way that I could give myself this false validation that I mattered, that I was important, that I had value. These little lies were these two things that rolled around in my head because I didn't want to face the fact that I had these strengths and I had these weaknesses. And gosh darn it, some people may not like me. But I had learned, pretty much near the end of my teen years, the ways to fit in, to find success, and to be popular. And yet at the end of the day, those things weren't lasting freedom in my life. I actually had no idea what freedom meant. None that I could actually be who God dreamed me to be? No, that was so far from it. However, it was finally then, in the words of Isaiah and Luke, that I could actually admit that I was poor, that I was blind, that I was an oppressed prisoner that needed to be set free. And when I was able to admit that, that's when I found freedom. What's the lie 
that is holding you back, that's holding you captive, that you think you can't escape from, but as soon as you admit it, you will see that there is less power that it had than just a few minutes before that. It's true, it's true, it is true. I still have moments where I have to call off the demons of achievement or the demons of acceptance. But I have named them and broken free from them. Galatians 1 continues, where Paul gives a hint of maybe his chains when he says, You've heard about my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in my Jewish religion beyond many my own age and my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Do you hear it? Do you hear that he'd bought into the lie of achievement? That if he could look better than the people around him, then he would matter? Then he would be okay? He had. I believe he had. We want others to like us. We want others to notice us. We want to be seen. But, as he's already said, if we're trying to win the approval of others, then we can't be a servant of Christ. Because, remember, a servant wants to please their master. A good servant wants to hear, well done. A good servant wants to hear their master say, excellent work. A good servant cares about what the master's thinking and strives to do that. And when we're trying to please people, we can't please Jesus. He said, no one can serve two masters. Have you bought into the lie of achievement or have you bought into the lie of acceptance? Or maybe you have a different one. I would encourage you to write it down because if you're still trying to please people, then you will not be a servant of Christ. And I believe the greatest lie from the pit of hell is that you have to prove that you're enough. That's not true. Jesus was enough and he calls you worthy. He gave his life for you because he loves you and he still loved you and you don't have to prove yourself to him. You are enough in him. And the greatest truth of Christ's reality of the resurrection is that you are already free. You don't have to be captive to those things, those lies that you have told yourself or have been told to you. You are already free. You can be who God has designed you to be. He sees it. And he's opening his arms for you to run towards him. Because he's run and he's run and he's run and he has not stopped pursuing you. Do you ever wonder what it would be like if you understood that reality and you lived into it? Author Brendan Manning wrote that we should define ourselves as one radically loved by God. I want you to try and say that this week. Hey, who are you? I am one radically loved by God. That's who I am. If you can't tell someone else, just look in the mirror and tell yourself that. You are one radically loved by God. This is your true self, he says. Every other identity is an illusion, I would add, also a gateway 
to a potential prison. Galatians 5 says that Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand and never let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. So as we close, when you took communion, did you sense Jesus' approval of you? Did you sense his closeness to you? If you didn't, think back because he does. It doesn't matter if you're one who would betray him or deny him. He would sense that closeness and he would call you towards him. If you can't confess these lies in your head, you'll keep being a prisoner. Don't worry, we got six more weeks of it. But I would encourage you as the band comes up to take that card and to confess that lie. Because these lies can hold you back or push you down, but they can also lift you up. And for some of us, they're not easy to name. For some of us, as we think about offering these lies, God drew me to Genesis 22 where Abraham is asked to offer his son Isaac, his one and only son, his most dearly loved part of himself. For some of us, the lies that we have, it's hard to know what part is our identity and what part is a lie. Just like it was hard for Abraham to reconcile that Isaac was this part of him that could be given up to show how much he loved God. See, when we bring our offerings or write a check or go online, we don't just put that in the offering and say, oh yeah, thank you. God asks us to sacrifice. And that may and is financially for us, and you're invited to do that, you're not forced to do that. But today, it's also so much more than that. But in the same way, if this lie is so attached to you, it's a sacrifice to give it up. And Jesus sees that and he says, yes, I see your sacrifice. This woman who gave the two coins, it was all she had. But she gave everything. Would you give everything? Would you give up those lies? Would you give up those things that hold you back so you can be free? It starts with naming the lies, and it starts with accepting his grace. So would you accept that grace with me today? Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that, that you came to set us free. God, that you came to bring us freedom, that you are not just for us, God, you are with us, and that you have good plan for our lives. And yet some of us, God, we live in prisons. Some of us live in the prisons of our own making. Some of us have been put there by the lies that others have told us, regardless of if we are a prisoner by ourselves or a victim from someone else. God, I proclaim freedom in this place. I proclaim that your light would shine down in a way that might make some feel vulnerable, God, but would give them the freedom to say, yes, this is the thing. This is the lie I believe that I have to get rid of, God. And it might be a sacrifice, but I give it to you. I don't know how I could live beyond this point without it, but God, I give it. 
because I know that you are the ultimate provider. Like Abraham said, okay, I give you my son. I hope that you bring him back. I believe that you are good enough to give him back to me, but God, I give to you. God, we give these things, whether we think they're good or we think they're bad. God, we give them to you. We know it's a sacrifice. Yes, God, we bring our money, but God, we bring our hearts we bring all the places that we put false security, God, and we put them out. We offer them to you. God, we offer our very souls to you because we believe you're the one who can give us new life. We don't just want freedom, God. We want to be healed and we want to be whole. God, we want restoration with you. I pray that you would speak to us. Speak to us in this song. Speak to us as the... Ushers come forward to receive those cards, to receive our tithes and offerings that we give ourselves to you, God. Regardless of how long we've been around or how long we've thought about it, God, God, that you are good and you are holy and you are great and you are mighty and you are making the world right. And we say amen, amen, amen.